Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. If you're interested in learning about the ketogenic diet like I was, to save my own life, then this is probably the podcast for you. Eight years ago, I knew nothing about it. Six years ago, it saved my life. Three years ago, I started researching and talking with some of the authorities in the field and attending medical conferences about this to understand why and how keto so dramatically changed my and my wife's Judy's lives. The purpose of this podcast is to share our journey of discoveries with you in understanding how keto is so effective in improving so many different conditions from obesity, epilepsy, diabetes, infertility, MS, Alzheimer's, heart disease, to name a few. So take a step away from all the hype you've probably heard and roll up your sleeves with me and join me weekly to explore this living miracle that anyone can access. We'll talk science, we'll talk food. We'll explore its history and evolution to today, which is that the sheer wonder of the ketogenic way of eating has changed untold number of lives, unlike anything before it. And in case I forget to mention it, please join our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp, and welcome back to another episode of the Keto Naturopath. Today, I just wanted to begin a new phase of some of these podcasts, and and that is I'm going to go through a series, not starting today, but starting next week or the week after, a series of six elements, which I think are really important overlays to the ketogenic diet. These are components of our uh, course that we're putting together, and I hope you'll find these fascinating, but each one is tethered to the ketogenic diet as the most important thing in one's diet. And I'll tell you more about that. So it'll be six phases, six related areas to the ketogenic diet that we'll be going a little deeper on, which I think is necessary to do. But today's topic is going to be what I consider keto in the real world. That is, what are some of the things that people bump into apart from the measuring their glucose and their ketones, we're going to back away from that sort of technical aspect and just just some ideas that have come up. So we've been in uh, the ketogenic diet for now six or seven years, pretty much in the last two years. Um, I won't say strictly carnivore. I would, I would have said strictly carnivore except for uh, Judy's creations every so often at our various birthdays that she makes some keto cakes and so on, which are delicious. So they're low or there's zero carb, but that clearly doesn't fit into the carnivore scheme of diet. But I think that the uh, carnivore diet is is really pretty amazing. So let me just get to the topics at hand. So why I call this keto in the real world is that in now having helped a number of clients and patients, I guess you could say, is that you get to see, you know, what are the things that hang them up? And one of the ones, I would say probably the biggest issue when you, because I work with these people for about 90 days. And so you, you have to bring them from, yes, they have to count the grams of their carbs, get the grams of their fat until they get that down, kind of habituated into a kind of a routine. They can eyeball it and then they can forget about it. So we do use chronometer, as many of you know. So once that's out of the way, what are the other obstacles? You know, that's just a technical thing. And some people, take to it very quickly and others just don't. Uh, I would say that the other, the greatest obstacle is food prep. You know, I think that the ketogenic diet is incredibly simple. And so it really comes down to what are you going to have for dinner? Is that something you can prep for ahead of time? 
And is that something that you can grab on the road? Is that something you can take on the road with you? So that food prep idea, once that gets brought into consciousness and awareness, then you can just load up on on great keto snack food if that's it. So that would be bacon and make, you know, doing your bacon ahead of time, your mayo ahead of time, having cans of sardines or mackerel, again, mixed with your mayo and or vinegar. All those are just fine ideas to have for quick, healthy food. And if you did nothing but that, you'd have a very healthy diet. Absolutely. And then you could then you could consider the quality of the food, grass-fed versus, and I think those are all relevant, but you have to start at the top of the pyramid with the most important thing, the thing that will give you the biggest bang for the bucks, and that is dropping the carbs and getting people to understand a larger concept of what they're doing. So food prep is a big deal, and it doesn't have to be very sophisticated. Uh, it really does not. And then you have to get into your protein sources, one, not having too much. It's not a crisis if you have too much. Sometimes I think I have too much. But to have them know what that is, and then what are different sources of protein? Okay, there's steak, there's fish, there's poultry, chicken, turkey, and you can leave it at that. I would definitely think of having people consider getting into organ meats. They're very important for other nutrients that are not so much found in the muscle meat, the steaks that we love so much. And I do love the steaks as well. And we've learned to, I've learned a lot more about cuts of meat in the last three years, certainly in the last two, than I ever knew before. It's not a bad thing. I have liver every day. And uh, Judy makes basically a liverwurst that we keep in a bowl. We don't wrap it up. Don't put it in skin. Though we could. And I just think liver is one of the easiest organ meats to have. Uh, I'll experiment with others. Now that we live in the South, in New Bern, North Carolina, there's a store in here, here called Piggly Wiggly, which is, goes back to pre-World War I times. And primarily now, it's, uh, I hate to say, it's, it's mostly, it has a large African-American food offering that came out, this is very interesting, that came out of slavery, meaning you can get your intestine, you can get pork brains, you can get any part of the pork you want. So in, in the Civil War, the good meat, per this is good in terms of the plantation owners took the good meat, and the good meats were the meats, meaning the, the, the muscle meat. So they were left with supposedly less desirous meats to have, but consequently they were much more nutritious. So from that, African-American slash uh, Gullah slash slavery, black culture, cooking culinary culture is what that's about. So these stores still exist. And uh, you can go in and and get uh, whatever it is you'd like. So I, I think I'll consider pork brain, but these are things that have long since left our diets five, 600 years ago, if not before that. Um, and now we're cautioned against brains specifically because we hear about mad cow, but that's primarily about beef. And if you go into to Latin America, we were in Costa Rica last year. And so we had choices of all these things again. Interesting. So there's a lot of nutrition there. That was a little bit of a tangent on protein sources and where you can go for that. You can keep it simple or not. I still, in terms of, we, we found a, a place to get fairly cheap, a tenderloin and a smoked, then seared tenderloin with either a C8 or a mayo or a special topping that we'll make is incredible. I just find it incredible. The, the nice thing here is nice thick steaks. So it has to be thick. Okay. Some of the discoveries are 
both cautionary and improvements that are old, tried and true that I rediscovered. So why don't we try start with that one? As pretty much everybody knows, I generally put, I did put collagen in my coffee, uh, noon coffee a little bit. I've experimented. I, I add things and I subtract things. So I had been adding collagen to one coffee a day, oh, probably for the last year or so. Maybe collagen's been around for a couple of years. Hard to know. Same canister, you just refill it when it gets empty. So that was nice. Did my skin get better or my hair or anything else? I really couldn't tell. You know, I, I was good. I felt good. I had no complaints. So then I stopped it. Stopped this about three weeks ago, completely. So I was only having maybe uh, a tablespoon in my coffee a day. So I stopped it completely. And what I noticed, I had a left shoulder. It's an old skiing accident that I did in high school, coming off a mogul and crashed in my left shoulder badly. And it started coming back. It was always a little bit of a twinge sometimes. It would go better or worse. And certainly when I'm doing high-intensity training, I'll definitely feel my left shoulder. So I really, you know, it kept me from reaching across my chest. And so I was thinking about seeing a chiropractor. And anyway... Uh, then I thought, why don't I just add in the collagen again? So that cut it by half. So I, then I thought, well, why don't I just double the dose, you know, or have it at another time, another tablespoon in the evening or in the morning? That cut it by a little more. And then I added another tablespoon three times a day. And now I just randomly add it to, this is not to coffee, by the way. This is just to water. It's basically tasteless. And this particular collagen is Great Lakes collagen. So it's nothing special. So I'm not even, we don't even have an affiliate on that. So it's just a product out there. And they get their, their collagen actually comes from hide. Why do I mention that? Because when you drill down into collagen, there's different kinds of collagen. There's collagen that has to do with cartilage. And so in the human body, you have different types of cartilage. Your cartilage for your ear, your cartilage for your nose, your cartilage between the joints of your, your bones, your legs and so on. Um, The collagen that's part of your skin, collagen is part of your nails, collagen is part of your hair. So it's pretty sophisticated. And so let me take you back in time. Back in the 90s, when I started practicing, just finishing up and getting licensed and finishing medical school, that glucosamine sulfate and then later chondroitin sulfate became very popular items. They were one of the first supplements out there for the general public. You know, now everything's a supplement form, but that wasn't the case back then. And certainly it was pre-Amazon. So you really had to get this through your doctor. So um, glucosamine sulfate was like this big, I won't say it's a miracle, but it was a big difference that you would give people and their joint pain, and you would give it primarily for joint pain. You would find you could take people off their various uh, analgesics, their various pain meds, because glucosamine sulfate just removed that completely. And chondroitin, they're, they're, one's a subcomponent of the other, so I consider them pretty much the same thing. So the whole focus for the better part of a decade, mid-90s to mid-early 2000, was all about chondroitin sulfate and, you know, what's your dose and so on. It just had to be high enough. And, and the argument back then, because everybody likes to try to seem like they're a specialist, is like one molecule was a lot larger than the other, and could that be absorbed and so on. And so that was the finer points back then. So enter in collagen, ordinary, just regular collagen. You know, it's out on the market and you hear about collagen certainly in 
cosmeticians and facelifts and things like that, that they'll do collagen implants and you need more collagen in your skin and that you lose your collagen as you get older. All those are true. But there was a company from Japan that was the first to refine it. They said, you know, we have a product in capsules that is collagen, three types of collagen. And it's better than a glucosamine sulfate and chondroitin sulfate. So you took this and it was like, that was remarkable. It was a lot faster, but it wasn't longer lasting. These are things if you stop taking them, it will stop. So it was an expensive supplement to both give out and certainly for the person to take. And so they would like it, but you know, how many people want to spend a couple hundred dollars a month on their joint pain when they have to keep taking it? You know, what's, what's to them, it's saying, what is the difference between taking your expensive collagen that you say is the natural way of treating with my joint pain or taking something that is far cheaper and analgesic or something that's even covered under insurance. So they had a good point from that perspective. It certainly wasn't from the natural health perspective. So now, you know, collagen has become pretty sophisticated. People talk about their collagen products that it has all five different collagens and they can say, you know, it comes from here, you know, therefore we have the most comprehensive multi-component collagen, and it will be good for everything. Your joint, your skin, your hair, your eyelashes, your fingernails, your joint. And no doubt, that's true. So after about 16 years of having a huge pharmacy and everybody sort of marches out with a ton of pills, and yes, that was probably a third of our profit for our naturopathic practice because insurance covered very little of it in Connecticut. So to make a living, that's what you had to do. So now I'm in the post office bricks and mortar world, and I really don't have a great interest in supplements. I'm not saying no supplements. I think supplements are very valuable. But the problem with supplements is if people get a benefit from a little, they'll take a lot more. And eventually they'll drive themselves. Most supplements work this way. Collagen does not really. Um, is that they will drive themselves into a deficiency. They'll have an excess of one which drives deficiency of others and they've caused a problem. I'm going to return to that concept in a little bit. So there's plenty of collagen. If you go into Amazon and you punch in the word collagen, you're going to see there's A to Z. You know, from Mercola to you name the guy or the store. They got their special brand. And I've talked to a number of chiropractors that have their special brand. So I went with the unspecial brand. This is now years ago. So if when you go online, you can look at Great Lakes Collagen. I don't have it in front of me, but it's a green canister. And um, and when you think of collagen derived from skin and other collagens derived from hooves, way back when I was a kid, that's what Elmer's glue was made from. Elmer's glue is still out there, not used for much anymore, but that's derived from collagen. So that was one of the, you know, this is pretty straightforward. They would always joke about, you know, send, they'll send you to the glue factory. Your old horses were sent to the glue factory. Well, call it a collagen factory if you want to, because that's was was glue. It was basically 100% collagen. So Great Lakes Collagen is powder. It's tasteless. And if you remember what those kind of glues tasted like, the paste, there was always some kid in our elementary school that sat in the back of the class and ate the paste. We thought that was weird. Now I understand why he ate the paste, because it was collagen. You'll see that it reminisces of that kind of smell of that kind of paste used in in grade school 
So it's so simple. You add it in water, or you can add it in your coffee, you can add it in anything. And uh, it's kind of a cream in your coffee, so to say, but it's remarkable. So what I'm saying is you don't have to get the fancy stuff. This is far, far cheaper. And I'm sure there's similar brands out there that are of the same price range. So save yourself a couple hundred bucks a month and just get the powder and you'll find it's it's really sensational. Now I want to elaborate a little bit on this. So the the idea of bone broth, we've talked about bone broth before. It's excellent. You know, and, and, and I have to, this is how I go back in my own mind is that, you know, this is collagen is actually part of the ancestral diet. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you go back to what we think were the hunter-gatherers and what did their campsite look like, what was the food that they ate? They ate a lot of meat and they ate primarily the fatty organs. We've been over this before, but they also did a lot of bone broths. You know, bones were not just tossed over their shoulder on the other side of the campsite. They were boiled down and say they were boiled down to the point that they became brittle. So that was a broth. That was always the, the follow-up. So all the, all the parts of the animals were used and consumed. So when you look at it that way, the bone broth, and so bone broth has the same constituents of collagen, that, you know, that's, that's what we always had, and that was our backup. We got plenty of minerals, and there's a few amino acids there that are unique to bone and cartilage, glycine, anyways, two or three. This is an off-the-cup relevation, that it's no wonder that our systems have adapted to both bone broth bone broth, which you can make at home, and we do, and I'll tell you about that as well in a second, but collagen in general. So it makes sense. So do you need to go to the sophistication of a very high-end collagen now? Do you need to go to uh, glucosamine sulfate and chondroitin sulfate? I would say no. I don't see any differentiation. I don't see any independent reason that makes you go there than here. So that was a windfall, and that was very surprising. So by taking something away, which is often what you do in naturopathic medicine, you take something away, and their diet and their health improves. You take certain supplements away, and their diet improves. Um, and you try to really grind down into their diet and take away the stupid foods, the processed foods, the foods that are heavily pesticided with, uh, are heavily contaminated with pesticides and herbicides. So that's the taking away process. And then when you see where the baseline is, you can add in a few select supplements. This is per my way of doing it. And then you test again in six months to make sure they're not overdoing it. And then you might be taking those supplements out. So that's how that is. I thought that was a real surprise and improvement of the collagen. So bone broth to collagen, uh, the whole history, the, the glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate, um, it's a real win. And so when for people, you'll, you'll hear when people start Keto, they'll say, oh, my hair fell out. Well, that does help into a lot of people, but the hair always comes back in. So nobody has lost hair long-term. And the whole process is, it's patches. And it's less about losing hair as opposed to the sequence, because your hair is always, right? Your hair is always falling out. You can find it on your comb. And it's not so much more as you get older. That's falling out for young people as well. But each hair follicle is on a different cycle. So it's being growing in new, and then it dies, and then it falls out. What happens when you start the ketogenic diet, a patch of your head has the same sort of starting new and falling out. So you'll get this synchronicity, the synchronization, I should say, of certain hair follicles. So they fall out at the same time, but they grow back in at the same time. And I would say for everybody to reframe that concept of, oh my gosh, my hair is falling out, what's going on, as opposed to autophagy of your hair follicles. In other words, you're getting a, a whole new 
crop of hair follicles and they can be far better. And everybody does confirm that for those who have the hair falling out, their hair has changed over a year. It's thicker, more luscious, and so on and so forth. And that's true. Your hair will change whether it fell out or not. It will change over time because of the ketogenic diet, assuming you're consistent on your ketogenic diet. And in part, some of that probably has to do with collagen. Okay, here is another discovery this week. So in coaching a lot of people, we have a formal coaching program, and then I take on a few other people, that one person who really is following directions, and we do a lot of testing, has been on some antibiotics recently, and that could be a big deal, um, that he asked, and you know, I ask everybody to say, what are the supplements you're taking? What are the medications you're taking? Because that sort of gives me how flexible is this person going to be metabolically? Are they locked into those meds? Or are they not? Are they, you know, are these supplements are really important to them? I prefer everybody to get off everything and be zero and let's just do it holistically, if you will. And then if we need to, when we go through our labs and our blood work, we'll add in a few things. So um, he's ultimately, he's right on. I have no complaints at all. You know, he has a lot of skin in the game and he really wants to get this done. So he told me that he had been taking melatonin and he wondered if that had anything to do with his kind of not high, but not as low as I would like them to be or expect them to be in the morning, given he's now four weeks into the program. So I had to go back and do some research. And it's really interesting. Melatonin, when you give it as a supplement, and I most people obviously take it for sleep and it has a whole sort of, it's good for cancer, but that's such a stupid thing to say when they say things like, this is good for cancer. You have to go in the context of what? What was the person's life like? It might not be good for cancer, but you'll hear that. If you punch into Google melatonin and cancer, you're going to get not necessarily stupid or ignorant articles, but they're out of context. So here's this. So what melatonin does is that it actually depresses your insulin at night, and so your glucose goes up. If somebody has trouble falling asleep, and you don't know why, this is just them taking it on their own. Hey, I heard it's good for sleep. I have trouble with sleep. I don't want to take medications. I'll take melatonin. Boom. Uh, usually it's used for jet lag, but anyways, people take it regularly. Unfortunately, it ends up being a drug. So it suppresses insulin, which means your glucose goes up. But one of the warnings, and it's one of the research is that uh, melatonin can potentially uh, induce seizures in those who have a history of seizures. So that would be an anti-ketogenic diet, right? So they're on the ketogenic diet, but they're taking melatonin. So the ketogenic diet, as we know, was actually about 100 years old, was created for epilepsy because fasting forever didn't work. So that's where we came from, but it's specifically for epilepsy. So now you're taking one thing that is counterproductive to the ketogenic diet, specifically to epilepsy. Does that mean it's counterproductive to everything? Hard to know, but considering the ketogenic diet is about getting your ketones up and about being you fat adapted, and now you're taking something that pushes your insulin down and pushes your glucose up, that would be counterproductive. So that was a great question that I had to follow up. And indeed, yes, it has to do with his morning blood work. 
Not, not as blood work, because morning glucose levels. We measure primarily glucose initially and ketones later. Ketones are primarily a distraction, you know, and also expensive to test all the time. So that was a real win. So my keto in the real world discoveries were cautionary use of melatonin. If you think you're taking something natural and you're a clever guy or a clever woman, well, you are, and it's better than certainly a lot of other things, but it is also counterproductive to the ketogenic diet in that sense. So now that you know the consequences, uh, do or do not, but now you know. And um, I thought that was great to reveal about collagen. I could have said the same thing about bone broth. So how we make bone broth now, you know, we did go the route of going to Whole Foods and asking for these, you know, grass-fed, you know, bones from grass-fed beef, and then they would actually cut them in half. So, um, and we would uh, smoke the marrow. And that was interesting. That's pretty high-end gourmet. Really didn't want to go to that much work anymore. So now we just use our own bones. So as we eat our meat and so on and so forth, we put the bones in a plastic bag and put it in the refrigerator. We have chicken. We take the chicken bones, put them in the bones, put them in a plastic bag. Fish, we have fewer bones because they're so small. So that's a minority of fish bones are in this. So when the bags get too big, we then just put them into a slow cook and we make bone broth of all the mixed bones. We no longer feel I have to, uh, you know, go and get the marrow bones from beef. I just, and it works out fine. And I would say if you really want to go down this bone broth route as the natural way to help your bone and get your collagen, um, I would focus on chicken feet. And if you can get chicken feet, you know, you have to prepare them a little bit, take off the nails and so on and so forth. But that has got to be the tastiest bone broth. And in fact, it's probably the most effective bone broth. It's high. And now that I'm back to the collagen, it's high. I think it's type three collagen that really is pretty intense, t intense in the sense of, wow, you feel good. And I can report back whatever, you know, if I, now that I have a, I've had this shoulder injury to sort of report, it disappears. And so chicken broth would be the top at the top. And I would say that the marrow bones for beef. You know, that's a lot of work. You can do that. You can be very gourmet and and uh, you'll get the, the tallow out of it. So there's all good reasons for doing that. So do that sometimes you want to. Do the chicken feet sometimes you want to. But just collect your bones and do it from your own bones. It's it's kind of a, even a more holistic way, right? Okay. So I wanted to go into a little bit about what we're doing on one of our programs. We're evolving through keto coaching and my whole approach now has been going deeper and deeper. You know, as I've talked about in previous broadcasts, I wanted to say is that when you go to various doctors and their ketogenic offices in practice and they say, oh, they get about, they have 50% success rate. Well, if you take them at their word, there's 50% that they're not successful with. Why is that? That's the question I ask. And I would suggest when people say, oh, I get... 50% success rate is probably about 40. So I'm going to go with 40 as success rate. That means 60% are just not getting the returns. So then you say, or you ask yourself, what's with the 60%? And even Verta Health, which has done the type 2 diabetes, over two years, their success rate, I think, is 53%. And that's documented. So what about the others? Were they not motivated? Were they not educated enough? Were they not disciplined? I guess that would go along with motivation. Um, were they not affluent enough to feel they had to buy 
whatever it is they thought they were going to buy or did they, you know, why was it it didn't work for them? So I don't think any of those reasons, actually. I think they had other problems and you have to look a little deeper. And so in taking that perspective, my approach has been to ask or require, you know, each level of coaching has gotten a little more sophisticated. So this last group that's going through, uh, they have to get four and an optional five tests. And so the tests that they get are basic blood work that I get and I make my own panel up. And so some of the things that I ask for are Oh, that you might not know. Obviously, the ins- fasting insulin, fasting glucose, hemoglobin 1AC, inflammatory markers, omega panel, uh, comprehensive panel, CBC, lipid panel. I look for folate, B12, carnitine, methylmalonic acid, homocysteine, and there's a few others. I don't think you'd know what they are, and certainly thyroid. Um, so it's kind of general with a little, with a few esoteric things thrown in there. Um, and so I get this panel back and I get to go through it with them collectively. And so you get to find out, well, who has the blood sugar problem? Who doesn't, you know, whose insulin is actually higher than, uh, it should be. Whose glucose is glucose, the glucose and insulin thing. This should be standard for everybody. But when you go to a doc, nobody asks for fasting glucose, sorry, fasting insulin. They should, because you can have a normal glucose and you can have an elevated insulin. It simply means your pancreas is pumping out a lot more insulin than the healthy guy or woman. And that's the beginning of, that's the beginning of, uh, it's prediabetes in essence. And that's the beginning of a fatter, fatty liver and a fatty pancreas, early stages of that. So that's a big win, but yet that is not taken. And that's a fairly cheap test to do. So you, you know, if you ever go and see your doctor say, please include a fasting insulin because this is what it's going to tell me. You couple that with fasting glucose and at least you have a, a sense that you've got an issue. It's not as good as a, a glucose tolerance test, which is a much bigger test. But however, and as a bit of a segue here, I'm working with uh, Ulta Labs to offer a free or very cheap discounted lab just on a fasting glucose and fasting insulin so I can offer it to both listening audience in the United States, Alaska and Hawaii included, for a nominal fee. It, they just have to pay for the blood draw, which is like eight bucks and maybe a couple. So for $10, you'll be able to get those two tests. And if I were you, um, here's hoping I'll announce it next week or the week after. But if I were you, that's probably, I've boiled down my list of now 20 years and saying, if you start there, you're going to get a real insight. People come back normal, fine. That means they really just don't, they don't have a an insulin or glucose problem. That's a good thing. Would they get more information out of a glucose tolerance test? Probably would. But I would say if they came back normal on that, uh, they're probably not going to be, they'll probably be normal on GTT. I can't guarantee it because I haven't done a hundred of both, but this is my, this is my sense. And the GTT glucose tolerance test is an uncomfortable test for anybody to take. So, um, so we look at those, we look at the, all those labs and that's very helpful. And you find that not just on the insulin and the blood glucose, but you're going to find inflammatory markers, other issues that come up. These people have not seen before. We look at, uh, there's a test called lactose, uh, lactase, lactate dehydrogenase, which is really a measurement of your mitochondria. How well is your mitochondria forming? And that's a that's a big deal. That's what the whole ketogenic diet's about, is making your mitochondria more efficient, making it a fat-adapted organelle. 
And so if they have an LDH, that you keep an eye on it. And if it's real high LDH, it may be a, a precursor to, to cancer. And then you would look in a whole different area. So we never found any real high LDH or LH, they call, um, LD as well. But it says, you know, I would take this 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 coaching program a little more seriously and what we're doing here because you have markers that should be checked in six months or maybe earlier that could you know mean a whole nother thing so let's take this as a health change not just i'm learning the ketogenic diet so that's pretty interesting then we go i told you i looked at folate and and b12 and what they call organic acid tests and so on um in serum that's your regular blood then we go to another company called SpectraCell. We look at intracellular nutrition. What are the deficiencies you find within your white blood cells? Why do I do that? That has a lot to do with the immune system, but that's a better understanding of nutrient deficiencies because you have to get into the cell. You have to get into the cell to be functional. So your B12 and your folic acid in your serum, that's your blood, right? I hope you know that. It's your blood, plasma serum. Um, that's just like a truck on the road. It hasn't been delivered yet. It hasn't delivered the goods yet. It's just on the road. And you don't know when it gets to that address that the delivery is going to be accepted. So so to carry out this analogy, intracellular measurement is about going inside that house, seeing if they receive those particular things. And that's where you look at the functioning of B12 and folic acid and, and a number of other things. And I find that very, very helpful. So that's the second layer of tests. We match these two together. And these tests... That takes four or five weeks to come back. Then we do a hormone panel. And it's not just a hormone panel from blood. In fact, it has nothing to do with blood. It's a 22-hour urine test through a company called uh, Precision. And it's called a Dutch Dried Urine Comprehensive Hormone Test. And it basically measures estrogens and androgens. And so that's all your different estrogens, uh, your testosterone with your other androgens, your cortisol. And it gives us a sense throughout the day, you know, the rising and falling right through the night. You, know, you get up in the middle of the night and you measure it then as well. And so it's a real tracking. And that's the most important thing because when you go to blood work and if you just go to your lab and say, I want a, a testosterone or a estrogen hormone, name your hormones that you want to have tested. That's only a moment in time and it's really out of context and it's nearly useless. Um, so that's why we do that. So now we're looking at hormone levels. And so this happens to be a, a group of men we're looking at. And so testosterone declines with age, true, doesn't have to decline very much, but it usually declines for a number of reasons. It declines because obesity. Um, as you become fat, your testosterone gets converted into estrogen. So it's not that they didn't have the testosterone, it's it that it got converted into estrogen. It also is affected by lack of muscle mass. So if men, as they've gotten older, just through the stresses of job and family and all the responsibilities, haven't been working out their lack of muscle mass or under muscle, muscle mass, under muscled, if you will, um, shuts down your testosterone production by a significant amount, and it varies per person. And then the fourth aspect is environmental toxins, which really has to do with, we call it either xenoestrogens or endocrine disruptors. They're all pretty much the same thing. And the famous ones you probably are aware of are uh, BPH, bisphenol A, 
and phthalates, which are plasticizers. So some people tend to generalize from those two components, all plastics. I think you sort of could do there, but the research is not there. For instance, we have our oil in a plastic bottle. It's called HDPE, and there's no research on that particular kind of hard plastic of any, what they call, leaching away. Uh, we do that because glass is far more expensive to bottle in, for one, and there's no evidence that there's problems. So we look at these endocrine disruptors in men right now, because that must be a men's group, as a component. So this is how we go through. Initially starts off with keto, looking for weight loss, but what it has evolved into is really a, a larger program, but all of these things have to do with testosterone, the, the, the second, the uh, subsequent two panels have to do with testosterone, and we get into how do you create muscle mass to get their testosterone up. You can't you can take what they call exogenous testosterone, but it's a little bit, I won't say dangerous. It's, it could be problematic because it, it, you're just adding more fuel to the fire. It can, these people were having enough testosterone, but it got converted to estrogen. So you have to sort of change that. The number one thing, this whole program is dropping your carbs, moderate protein, and increasing your fats. If that doesn't happen, these other things are just academic layers of good things to look at, but they should be sub subsequential, not in front or instead of a hearty ketogenic diet. So there's two other concepts I wanted to give out just from my experience of coaching people. And that is what I call medical lockup and supplement lockup. It can happen either way. Some people are this whole concept of biohacking, you know, what's the, what's the thing that I need that makes me feel good? What's the fastest way for me to lose weight? What's the pill? I mean, it sends you to supplements. So people have this rather esoteric list because they think they're real smarty pants. You know, the, the best anti-inflammatory, the best liver support. And first of all, the research is on one supplement is scant on multiple supplements to have, a, have is, you know, to have a collective effect is less so. But there, there is some. And then the other thing is the research that we have on anything was done, if it is done in people, was done in people that had a high-carb diet. So a lot of that is a whole different outcome. When you're giving supplements to somebody in a low-carb, high-fat, moderate-protein diet, it changes everything. Absolutely changes everything. So, um, oh, the last level of test, we look at genome. So we look at SNPs, single nuclear polymorphisms, that, and we pull out the ones that are relevant, and we address those. So it's pretty interesting. Um, so anyway, the people that are on too much supplements, they are just so rigidly locked to their supplements that it ends up being, you know, a medical lockdown. So you have to de-supplement them inch by inch by inch by saying, you know, these aren't necessary. Let's just put them to the side for a couple months, for three months. Put them to the side. So you have to go through kind of a detox of them getting off their supplements to be normal. And then you just sort of build on a regular diet. And if, by looking at blood work, you need to add a few back in and add a few back in. But that's the approach there. But you have a, a, a supplement lockup. So the other is actually a medical lockup you, in which you have to de-prescribe. So for me, I'm a naturopath in North Carolina. I can't do that. And I don't want to be their doctor. I'm just their coach. But they have to go to their doctor and get a, a statement saying, you know, they're going to help support John or Bob 
to deprescribe when their blood sugars start to drop. So there's that. So that's so you have to these people, you know, that are on seven medications, you can't just snap your fingers like you can with supplements. I can't quite with supplements either, but you have to but you you have to really back down slowly. So they're regardless of whether these medications are working or not, you have somebody who's diabetic, so they already have elevated insulin, they already have elevated glucose. So they they're and their insulin's huge on the scale. They're way pumping insulin, obviously. Well, then uh, the endocrinologist, usually the diabetic doc, starts giving them more insulin. So there's so much insulin. These guys are just packing on the pounds, right? Because insulin job job is to take the glucose out of the blood and into the fat so they get fatter and fatter and fatter, heavier and heavier and heavier. So to undo that, you put them on the ketogenic diet, but that in itself isn't just going to you know, you can't go snap your fingers again and say, let's just drop all this, is that they have, they have to go down slowly. It's in such a painful, painfully slow. So then they have the high blood pressure medication, and then they have the heart medication, and then they have the statin. So you have to educate them one medication at, at a time, and which means you have to educate their doctor one medication at a time and show them, and this is a big point, that there are nutritionally induced deficiencies that are caused by these medications, whether it's CoQ10 or various vitamins, it's a problem. So they're being driven into deficiencies. So that's why the spectrocell is very helpful to show us where these deficiencies are, you know, to how do you build these back up? You know, as I say in the course, you know, you're filling in the potholes. So at least we have a normal life nutritionally to work with and to build on, but when they're on seven medications, you know, they're just oozing deficiencies and you really have a harder shift to patch up. So I thought I'd leave you with that because people think medications just patch, patch them together, we're all good, and, and there's no real side effects. Or if there is a side effects side effect, then they'll get another medication that will treat that side effect. And then it goes on and on and on to the point that it's almost a Gordian knot of not being able to de-prescribe them. So I thought the perspective from me to you about how do you begin approaching people who really want to change their lives. And uh, we're dealing with some serious weight loss of this particular group we're in right now. Others have taken me on for immune reasons, sort of headed off to the, to the cancer side of things. How do you um, pull back from an autoimmune condition, which there's many, pretty similar um, but we just look for different markers. Okay, so till next time, I hope this hasn't been too much of a off-the-cuff extraneous earful, but that you find this interesting. I certainly do, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Goldcamp. I thought I would take a moment of your time to tell you about something that we've been working on for a long time, and that is our product of C8 Keto MCT Oil. How is it different and why would you even care about it? It's the highest purity you can find in the market, which is 99.7% caprylic acid triglyceride. And by the way, that's backed up by a certificate of analysis. It's not just me making up these numbers. But I think the bigger story behind our C8 MCT oil is not only that it is the most efficient way for you to create ketones naturally, and that is all three ketones, your beta-hydroxybutyrate, your acetoacetate, and your acetone. That's important. But the other part is it supports sustainably harvested 
palm oil. Why would you care? Because all the other C8 oil products out there, not the MCT oils, but the C8 MCT oils, some people call them ketogenic oils out there, they come from palm oil. And palm farming, specifically palm kernel farming in Southeast Asia, is decimating the rainforest there. Absolutely. You go on right now to Google or to YouTube and say palm oil Southeast Asia, and you will be in tears at the end of 10 minutes when you see the destruction that's happening. This is not part of that. This is the exception. So it's called RSPO, Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil. You have to apply for it. You have to be audited by them. And it's a long, rigorous process. And it took us two years to bring this product to market. I hope you care. And I know you'll care about the efficiency in which it helps you make ketones. By the way, we don't drink this like it's a fluid. We put a little bit in our coffee. We make our mayonnaise out of it. We make... Uh, various salad dressings out of it when we have a salad. It's basically a, I hate to say crutch, but it's my aid to keeping me in ketosis when I want to be in ketosis. It's fast. It's long lasting, certainly long, longer lasting than exogenous ketones and much more holistic, as I mentioned, with all three ketones. That's about as much as I want to say. I hope you look into it. I hope you uh, take your ketones readings on a regular basis as long with your glucose. If you do, then you really value this product. All the best, and I thought you should know. Mm -hmm.